healthcare dynamic has been forced, for better or for worse, to be exponentially more knowledgeable and literate with their diagnoses, medications, and their own vitality over the past decade, as care models and strategies continue to go from fee-for-service to value-driven reimbursement models, the terms patient engagement and advocacy continue to be more than just buzzwords and are a vital link to potentially driving down the costs and improving health, but at what expense? I'm Mindy McGrath, and I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel and Mike Catone. Hello, everyone. Just a reminder that the Dynamic High Five podcast is our take on specific healthcare industry topics that are real, they're relevant, and worth discussing. In today's episode, we'll discuss the different takes on what patient advocacy is and how it's evolved, the cost and burden patient advocacy can bring to healthcare systems, patients and caretakers, and in all sectors, and some thoughts on solutions and how it relates to patient literacy. Between the thoughts around advocates and literacy will be a rich dialogue with Dr. David Fagenbaum of Penn Medicine, and he brings new meaning to the term patient advocacy. His story is an amazing and true tale of bringing life into your own hands to survive. And as always, stay tuned for the end of the show's parting thought, that thing that we have either read on or heard about that we would like to share with you. So how's everyone doing today? It's great. It's concert season, isn't it? It is concert season. (laughs) It's Friday, the weekend's beginning, and it is definitely concert season, which I am looking forward to. Yeah, me too. We have some lined up in the next couple weeks, so we'll be singing. We will be singing. How about you, Katone? Well, I don't know if I'm going to be singing or attending any concerts, but I hope we're going to be pleasing some ears today with today's episode. Oh, Uh-oh. very good. Yeah, it's great. Um, I, don't, I don't have any tickets right now, so I think I had to make something up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why don't we jump in? Let's do it. So I thought it would be interesting today to take a little bit of a different spin on this episode of High Five. I wanted to take a stab at looking at the subject from more of a patient's perspective. We talked in the past about consumerism, but there are really two ways to look at patient advocacy. Um, there is the capital P, patient advocates, and that pertains to you know what we would like to call a diverse community of professionals that advocate for those living with diseases like, I don't know, cancer or any other chronic illnesses or those that just get discharged from the hospital. These folks, these patient advocates, capital P, capital A, they help patients communicate with their healthcare providers. They kind of serve as a link, so they receive the information they need to make informed decisions about their healthcare. Patient advocates may also help patients from a tactical support perspective as well. You know, we've seen areas where they set up appointments for doctor visits, medical tests, and even obtain, you know, financial, legal, and social care. Um, They may also work directly with insurance companies, employers, case managers, attorneys, all these stakeholders that really do have an effect on the patient's needs. And sometimes the advocacy starts with helping people get medical care, cope with adaptations to their life. And in many health systems we've been studying, they're kind of referred to as patient navigators, so it takes on a different kind of title, and we'll use that word interchangeably today. But there's also the other idea of patient advocacy, and that's kind of the lowercase p, or the philosophical idea of patient advocacy. And this describes kind of the degree of unpaid and unsupported work patients take on to help facilitate their own care or the well-being of a loved one. And we'll be talking about their actual understanding and comprehension of the care. Again, it ties right back to the idea of consumerism. What we sometimes overlook is that for most patients, from the underserved to the healthy, low-risk patients that must follow up on referrals to specialists, they all must understand their insurance policy. They all must fill and manage medications. And and they have to comply with therapy and other regimes. 
um, and many times without a lot of assistance. And I think both of those roles are really complex, and I'm glad that you made the distinction between the two, because I think they both deserve a thorough discussion. When I think of the general idea of patient advocacy, a better term I think we should use to actually differentiate between the two is literacy. Hmm. And literacy from a patient standpoint in America is a really large impediment on the success of our industry as a whole. With the advent of life-changing medicines and personalized treatments, it really hasn't ever been a better time to be diagnosed with an illness that a generation ago, you know, there was no cure, there was no treatment mm -hmm. that was out there, and definitely no help for survival in some cases. But life sciences companies, healthcare technologies firms that are top top of the world, best in class, the the government, the medical device industry, and maybe like even research companies, they're really beacons of medical innovation and discovery, and they're they're bringing these to market all the time. But despite that great success, the patient in the U.S. still pays more and receives less in terms of health outcomes than most other high-income nations. And I'd argue that literacy is a big reason for this. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I think literacy is one of those um, topics that doesn't get talked about enough, right, within the industry. But before we dive, like, way too deep into the literacy of patients in the United States, I think maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about the role of a patient advocate in the healthcare ecosystem, because I think these roles have become really a stalwart within hospitals, um, at health plan call centers, at integrated delivery networks, and life sciences mm -hmm. companies today, we're seeing it. You know, they really are designed in large part to help patients with, you said navigation, I would say decision making as well, um, around health behavior change, around medication, and even around how they manage like lifestyle, right, associated with disease management. I mean, maybe you've recently, um, have a recently diagnosed parent or like in my case, it was a recently diagnosed brother, right, who had a cancer diagnosis and really demystifying some of the tests and, gosh, clarifying the clinical lingo, which is not done intentionally. It's just, you know, there's a gap mm -hmm. between understanding what clinical lingo means in layman's terms and then things as simple as like following up on appointments that are crucial during treatment, especially when somebody is feeling vulnerable and not feeling well. These roles are all meant, I think, to bring life to the term patient engagement. And I mean, if we're really honest, it's become a big business in the healthcare industry. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And it's actually kind of bringing that term to life to have real world implications, patient engagement. And it has been used at, at will over the last, I don't know, more than a decade. But these advocates that we're referring to really do have the potential to engage the patient to change outcomes and not just bring them along in the journey. Um, so several US studies you know, prove that engaged patients, you know, however that's defined, who are partnered with or informed by these advocates, reduce mortality rates compared to control groups who only took appropriate medication. So, you know, having an advocate help actually guide you through those journeys versus going on those journeys alone, right? It's so hard, right? Yeah. How, how can you possibly think somebody could actually do it and do it well when they don't have somebody kind of assisting them along the way? For sure. And, and the studies specifically point to... Um, chronic ill and chronically ill patients who are engaged in their care, they actually live longer than their unengaged peers who otherwise received the same treatment but had not received that advocacy. Right. And I do think, um, you know, on some level, we do need to talk at least briefly about the inner work workings of 
patient advocate and navigator, mm-hmm. um, which navigator obviously has risen in prominence since the um, implementation of the Affordable Care Act. But I think we've also seen a lot of healthcare businesses pop up that their sole purpose and sole service is around navigator. And I think like really talking about patient advocacy and navigators and kind of where that term came from, what exactly they do, and how exactly they interact with both patients and clinicians, as well as payers, right? Um, then we probably can debate on how much of that role really plays into things like healthful outcomes. And I think the term in the program is, in fact, we'll call it new in healthcare circles. So even though... Um, you know, a lot of things are popping up in the healthcare world right now. I still think that the the verbiage patient advocacy and the idea of navigators is a relatively new concept. Um, you know, it dates back to just about 30 years ago in the U.S., which some people might say, oh, that seems like a long time ago, but it really isn't yeah. In in um, when you're looking at the U.S. healthcare system as a whole. You know, it was in like 1990 where Dr. Harold Freeman, who was this very, very successful surgical oncologist, he actually partnered with the American Cancer Society to create what we think of as really the first effort around patient navigation. And, you know, this formation was a direct result of really hearings that were conducted in the late 80s across the U.S. by the American Cancer Society. So they heard from patients, right? They heard from loved ones about how difficult it was for individuals that were dealing with this type of a disease to navigate, to figure out the choices that they had, to figure out the decisions that they had to make, to align all the medications and the treatments, and really even align among the different specialists that they may have to see. So a lot of this was really initiated as a result of patients and caregivers giving feedback into the system about what was working and what wasn't working. And I think these these Patients and families, really, you know, the heart or the theme of what they were talking about often was just lacking knowledge about things as simple as their disease state or lacking knowledge around what the financial implications of this would be. Um, And if you think, I mean, 30 years ago, right, we were in a time where managed care was really just starting to take off. A lot of complexity in understanding the difference between indemnity care and managed care. So things like that really started to, to take precedence in these hearings that were being held. And I think a patient navigation model was really born out of that. And over time, we've seen it really grow in terms of just sophistication and the holistic manner in which a navigator offers their services. I think this specific program increased the rate of follow-ups. It increased even survival rates. And we've seen this model really proliferate over the last 20 or 30 years. But I think the navigator program and the role doesn't only reside in the provider sector, which is really where it was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that while it's while it was born in the provider sector, it has really made inroads in many ways in the healthcare system. And it's a billion-dollar industry as a whole, but there are some distinctions about how these navigators and advocates are actually deployed in other sectors. In health plans, for example, navigators play a vital role in helping customers prepare electronic and paper applications to establish eligibility and enrollment coverage through the marketplaces and potentially qualify for insurance affordability programs. They also provide outreach and education to raise awareness about the marketplace so it can can actually get the availability out to as many patients as possible. And they refer consumers to health, health insurance ombudsmen and consumer assistance programs when necessary. 
Yeah, it's interesting to me, right? Because like the navigators took prominence um, as part of the passage of the Affordable Care Act and really helping people navigate what their choices might be on the individual marketplace. And what we've seen with the um, the administration that came in in 2016 is that Health and Human Services made the decision to actually cut funding on navigators. Um, and so it's really put uh, those types of navigators, at least in a position of trying to do more mm-hmm. with less. Um, and yet I think, uh, you know, general consensus in several studies um, would suggest that many individuals that were coming into the marketplace at the time found navigators extremely helpful in help in clarifying what this new marketplace um, would mean to them and how they could make decisions on it and even making recommendations on plans that fit them um, based on their needs. So just interesting to see how, you know, through the decades as we look at different policy, uh, through different policy lenses, how um, different leadership at HHS views the importance, and I would say, like, the role of navigators within the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because there's not as much of a usage uh, of those types of navigators that are sort of housed within that area, we see national private companies and programs rise up to sort of try and fill that gap. And many of these groups, like Patient Navigation and Cancer Care, the American Cancer Society's Patient Navigation Program, Live Strong Navigation Services, they're not specifically affiliated with a, with a system or a health plan, and they're sort of agnostic to outcomes. But it's still curious to see how patients can actually access these services as they're more disparate and spread out, and there's not necessarily a, a great centralized way to go out and, and shop for those services. Yeah, know where to find them, right? That's right. exactly it. You know, I think the other interesting thing is when we talk about navigators, so you talked about some of these um, private organizations and, you know, um, companies that have basically stepped into the navigator role um, because either it's part of their mission or because they've decided it's a valuable service to offer. I mean, it's interesting to see how other sectors, right, have also kind of stepped into this role. So I'm thinking specifically around life science companies that have, you know, products in the market where they are dealing with really complex either disease states or individuals that are having to navigate through a very complex health system. And they go and they actually, you know, hire third parties to support patients in this navigation journey. And so they find great value, right, in ensuring that the patients that are taking their products understand um, what the new world of like personal medicine is like, especially when you you think about different therapeutic classes like immunotherapies, um, getting the correct dosage in that particular disease, you know, therapeutic area, just like many, is like really really critical to making sure that that individual is reaping the benefits of that particular product. You know, I would say. Um, on a broader scale, right, that healthcare navigators in the ASA marketplaces still have a place, right, that the federal government is still funding them, it's just with less. And so it's going to be interesting to me as open enrollment comes up this year, um, will we see navigators being able to put forth the same type of effort that they've put forth last year? Because they did a lot last year um, with very little funding as well, cut even further. Uh, so, you know, it, it'll be interesting just to see how these navigators succeed in um, managing to keep 
either people enrolled in ACA marketplaces and reaching as many people as they feel they need to reach. Yeah, and, and we I think we did a, a nice job efficiently talking about the macro idea of patient advocacy from a marketplace perspective and then how advocates can play a role in a more distinct way about care for patients. Um, and in fact, we have an interesting and fascinating interview today with with a patient and a friend who actually became his own advocate and navigator. So I'm so happy to introduce our podcast listeners to Dr. David Fagenbaum and his journey. Joining us today is Dr. David Fagenbaum, who founded the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. Uh, Dr. Fagenbaum is a patient with Castleman Disease and has made it his life's mission to redefine the traditional model of advocacy and fundraising for his disease and other rare diseases as well. Um, he has a very unique perspective. Um, this disease nearly killed him. So welcome, David. Glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm so sorry much. for that um, kind of harsh intro, but I think it's really important for our listeners to hear that. So um, tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. So um, I uh, went to medical school here at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, I was a, a healthy uh, medical student, never had any medical issues, and actually uh, was inspired to go into medicine um, because I'd lost my mom to cancer and was, was on this track to hopefully become a cancer doctor and treat patients in her memory. And then all of a sudden, I went from being totally healthy to uh, experiencing multiple organ failure. I was hospitalized at the same hospital, UPenn, where um, I'd been treating patients, and, and I began to, to slowly deteriorate. And um, soon I was transferred to the intensive care unit, um, where I uh, gained 50 pounds of fluid. I had a retinal hemorrhage and went blind in my left eye. Um, I had such bad kidney failure, I needed dialysis and m multiple blood transfusions a day, um, all with no diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so um, I spent weeks um, in the intensive care unit with no diagnosis, um, fighting for my life. And, um, and today's about patient advocacy, and, and it's not really even just patient advocacy. My family was advocating for me. Um, they were fighting for, for more testing and, and, and trying to answer questions because I wasn't um, capable of doing that. Um, eventually, after about 11 weeks, I was finally diagnosed with a disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. I was so sick um, at the time that I was diagnosed that I actually um, was read my last rites uh, just one day after I was diagnosed because uh, the doctors didn't think I would survive. Um, but fortunately, I got chemotherapy um, uh, just in time, and uh, the chemotherapy began to to attack the disease that was attacking me, and um, and I and I survived. So idiopathic MCD is a, a rare and deadly inflammatory disorder where basically the immune system attacks and shuts down your vital organs, um, and it was uh, very much doing that to me until mm. chemotherapy um, helped to get the disease under control. Um, and once I finally had a diagnosis, I was just so grateful to finally have a name to put on this thing. Um, but the further I started to dig into what is this disease, um, the more I realized that just having a diagnosis actually wasn't going to give me all the answers I needed. There was so much that was not known about this disease. And um, unfortunately, I, I relapsed soon thereafter and um, went back into the intensive care unit. Um, but this time I was at the hospital, um, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, where there was this tremendous expert for Castleman disease. And I think, again, getting back to the theme of today, it, it was important for my family and I to go to the expert to find um, this doctor in Little Rock, Arkansas. And um, to be able to receive care from him. And again, I got very sick, and this time I needed multi-agent chemotherapy, so seven different chemotherapies 
um, were administered to me, which ended up saving my life. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, after about six months, spending almost that whole time in the hospital, I, I actually walked out of the hospital um, thanks to chemotherapy. Um, and, and, and kind of when I walked out of the hospital after, um, after that, that long period, I thought maybe this disease was in my rearview mirror. There was a, a new clinical trial that was enrolling patients, and um, I was started on that clinical trial drug and was really hopeful that, um, that maybe the disease wouldn't come back. And mm -hmm. so I came back to med school, and um, uh, I was very hopeful that, that this disease is in my rearview mirror um, when, um, unfortunately, I relapsed about a year later on that drug, the only drug in development for my disease. Um, so soon thereafter, um, I was hospitalized and received the same chemotherapy um, that I had before. Um, but this time, now that I had failed the only drug in development for my disease, the only um, treatment target that was even um, being studied for Castleman's, that's when I decided that I would try to take on the disease um, at a systematic level or a systems level and try to advance research for Castleman's disease. And that's kind of when you, the, the, the pivotal moment when you kind of took matters into your own hands, which is kind of our the title of our podcast. So tell us about that next wave where you actually helped find, um, I, I, you know, we've talked in the past about your personal story of like when you kind of... Uh, appeared into your brain of what the situation was. I remember you saying you're in your kitchen, but what, what, how did you effectively find uh, a treatment that worked for you? So it was, um, it was a long road and I guess it's, it's still a long road that we're on, but, um, but the first step when I, when I relapsed on that only drug in development and I nearly died for the fourth time in two years, um, uh, just as we said, that's when I decided that I was going to try to take on the disease. And um, my sisters and, and my wife were there in the room with me after I got the news from my, my doctor um, about how grim the state of research was, how we didn't know what causes IMCD. We didn't know um, really the way the disease worked, and we didn't know any other drugs. And so um, after that conversation, I, I told them, I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to cure this disease. And um, when I got out of the hospital and survived um, that, the fourth episode, um, it, the first step for me was to figure out what's, what's going on in the field. So, you know, who's doing what? Who are the various players? Um, where's, where are we as a field? And um, I was really disappointed to see the state of science, and, and in particular, the, the level of collaboration that was going on. There were a few people here and there that were working together, but, but really, or that were working separately, but no one was really working together. So once I had an idea for the landscape, um, it was pretty clear that um, I would need to take kind of two parallel approaches to try to get to the end goal, which would be new therapies for the drug. And one was that I would start a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, a network of physicians, researchers, and patients all working together to try to drive forward a cure um, on an international scale. Um, but then on, on a on a much more micro scale here at the University of Pennsylvania, I would begin conducting Castleman disease research in the laboratory. And so mm -hmm. I would really try to um, get involved in actually driving forward the science um, in the lab in addition to working at a systems level. And um, there was it was so important to have both pieces working at the same time because um, obviously progress can be made in one lab, but there's no way that a disease that's been around for 60 years and so little progress had been made, um, that any one group could do that. And so that collaborative network approach in the CDCN was just so, so important. So we brought together physicians and researchers from around the world. Um, we used that community um, to then prioritize what research should be done. And once we had prioritized what should be done, then we went out around the world um, to find the best people in the world mm -hmm. to do our studies. And then and, and we just we, you know, pushed forward with a relentless, relentless effort. Um, and 
in the midst of all this progress for the CDCN and also the, the work that I was doing at Penn and, and trying to, to tease apart this disease, um, I had uh, another major relapse. Um, this time I was actually was on weekly chemotherapy at the time, hoping that that would prevent a relapse, but I still relapsed. Um, and uh, I got multi-agent, seven-agent chemo again, and it saved my life just barely again. Um, but once I got out of the hospital, as you said, um, I decided to turn to all the data that I'd been generating in my own uh, in my own work, and then also that the network had been generating. And um, within um, those data, and, and spending weeks and weeks going through medical records and, and, and laboratory test results, there were a couple trends that I that I found within the data, a couple patterns that that seemed promising um, around a, a particular cell type, the T cell, and then also a signaling pathway, the mTOR pathway, and then um, a cytokine called VEGF, and and um, as, I, as I was finding these patterns, uh, I was hoping to find something that could kind of pull them together. What is there some sort of like kind of common denominator between these three things that um, that I, I was finding in the data? And um, it, it turns out there is. There's a drug called serolimus that's an mTOR inhibitor that also is really, really good at suppressing T cells and decreasing VEGF expression. And so um, this is a drug that's FDA approved for kidney transplantation. So you give it to someone to prevent them from rejecting their, their new kidney or new organ. Um, and it suppresses the immune system. And it had never been used before for Castleman disease, but at this stage I had nearly died five times from the disease, and, and nothing that had ever been studied um, had worked for me. So um, I talked to one of my doctors at the time. I, I was a physician at the time, but um, talked to one of my doctors uh, who had been going to uh, about trying this drug, and um, he agreed, you know, based <laughs> on the, the limited data we had, that, that this was the right thing to do. Um, and so I started on it about four and a half years ago, and now I've been in, in remission for four and a half years. It's amazing. It's, you know, I, I've heard this story many times, and it doesn't cease to amaze me. I, I think it's a really interesting point. You have a distinct clinical background. Uh, you were an aspiring physician when you found this out. And, you know, folks that are dealing with illness um, or family members who are dealing with patients with illnesses or even common everyday ailments don't have that advantage or don't have that ability to influence their physicians when they're going in. So, you know, we talked a little bit about what you've done personally and how you've kind of, I'll say, meshed um, <clears throat> business process with kind of a clinical um, solution, what would some advice you would give from an advocacy perspective to common folk that don't have a medical background that you have? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think there's kind of two pieces to this. Um, the first is that if, um, if you have a loved one with a disease or you have a, a disease uh, yourself, um, there are really incredible opportunities to help to drive forward the science, even if you don't have a clinical background, or, or especially if you don't have a clinical background. There's so much that that community needs from you. Um, researchers and, and physicians are, are very good at the work in front of them, the patient in front of them, the experiment in front of them, um, but they don't necessarily have the time or the talent to think big picture about how does this study fit with another study? How can I make sure that I have the funding today to do the work I need to do tomorrow? And that's the kind of work that, that an advocate can do that a patient or a loved one of a patient um, with a particular disease can get involved in trying to, to, to take that step back and say, you know, how do we get from, from A to Z? Because unfortunately, physicians and researchers are, are often thinking about getting from A to B and, and not all the way um, to the end of the line. Um, but then as far as particular um, drugs that can be tried, I think that um, 
probably the greatest opportunity in, in, in American healthcare, in my opinion, um, to save lives as quickly as possible is to leverage and to take advantage of already FDA-approved drugs for new indications. Um, right now, the FDA, there are about 1,500 FDA-approved drugs um, that are approved for about 2,500 diseases, but there are 10,000 diseases. So about three-quarters of diseases don't have a single FDA-approved drug. Um, most of them are really rare diseases, um, but so many drugs have multiple uh, mechanisms of action, and so many diseases share common um, pathologies across diseases. And so um, you can imagine that there are many of those 1,500 drugs that actually might be life-saving for one of those, mm -hmm. uh, for a patient with one of those 7,000 diseases that don't have an FDA-approved drug. And, and look at this drug, serolimus. No one would have ever thought to try it, and, and now look at, look at what it's doing. And so um, I think that there's this real opportunity um, to try to advance off-label drug use um, and to take advantage of all these drugs that the FDA has already said are safe and they're effective for something. Maybe they can help something else. Yeah, and I think that is a great point. I think we, we put a lot of emphasis on new drug launches yes. and what the FDA is approving this year, next year, or what the, year, the EMA is approving in Europe. But... <clears throat> Taking a step back, and, and even it doesn't take a doctor or a physician to, to ask those questions about what what possible medicines are on the market today. It's exactly. A, it's a great anecdote. Um, I have one more question for you. It's kind of, you know, you and I have talked about us being pathological optimists, right? right. That's, our, that's our common that's mind. Right. Uh, the question I have for you is, if there's one thing you could change um, in, in kind of the lens of advocacy and patient advocacy in the U.S. healthcare system. You talked about what we could do as advocates, but from an industry perspective or a, a healthcare industry perspective, what, what is one thing you think we could change? So I would still say that I think it's important to stay within this realm of off-label drug use. Mm -hmm. um, but from a systems side, um, what's unfortunately not being done is that there's no systematic tracking of, of drugs being used off-label. So um, for example, a patient like me, let's say a doctor gets really creative and tries this new dr a drug, an old drug for a new use, um, and, it, and it works for a patient really well. Um, there's no sort of way that that data is captured anywhere so that another doctor down the street can do the exact same thing mm -hmm. for another patient. Um, and equally as, as, um, as concerning is that let's say a doctor gets really creative and tries a drug and it doesn't work. That also doesn't get captured. So, on, so then down the street, someone might try the exact same drug, and it's not going to work again. Um, and so, w w I think it's really important that the system um, comes up with a solution whereby off-label drugs are either tracked in some sort of centralized database, or if there isn't going to be a government effort to track off-label use in a centralized database, if electronic medical records can collect very simple data on whether drugs work or drugs don't work. Because as, as you know right now, the EHR collects so much data, but the one thing that I think is most important um, that's missing is whether the drug worked or not. Yeah. And so you can go through all these medical records, you can see all the drugs being used, um, but there's no variable or there's no outcome on did it work or did it not work. Um, and so I think that that's a real opportunity um, from the healthcare system perspective, whether it's regulatory, where the regulators say, you know what, if you're going to use drugs, off-label, you need to track it in this database, um, although that would be a huge undertaking, you know, millions and millions of off-label prescriptions daily um, versus uh, a, 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 an attempt by the electronic medical records to do it themselves. That's great. You know, I think a lot of times we talk in this podcast about difficult solutions that are sometimes simple, right? And that's one of those that I think that, you know, would take a, a large undertaking, but the concept is pretty simple, and I think everyone can get their arms around. So, I appreciate that. So um, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I, I know that you're not getting a lot of sleep with your newborn, so I do appreciate you coming in in the morning and chatting with us. We could talk all day about this, but I appreciate your time. So glad to be here. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks, David. Now on to the second part of the topic. 
So we've heard the incredible story about David and taking advocacy into his own hands. Let's talk about the more personal topic of patient literacy and how that relates to patient advocacy as a whole. It's inconceivable to think that anyone else would be able to do what David did. That is, become his own advocate and beat his disease. It's taken him years to navigate through this. In fact, there are still thousands of people that die from his rare disease alone, despite his efforts. Right. And I, I think he's just fascinating. His story mm-hmm. is inspiring. Um, and, you know, as somebody that prides myself on being a continuous learner in healthcare, I too have experienced some really personal and challenging sagas around the care of my family and friends where I've really struggled. Um, to understand the inner workings and the right decisions to make in clinical settings. And, I mean, here I am working in the industry, and I think to myself often, like, I'm pretty knowledgeable about this industry. I can't imagine what it's like for um, loved ones and family members that have to try to figure out this industry, and they don't have the level of knowledge that Dr. Fagenbaum had or that I have. Um, In a strange way and in kind of an ironic twist, I think the – the proliferation of online materials and the information access points and communication forums may not have positively impacted our understanding of the healthcare system mm-hmm. and all of its complexities. I mean, Academy Health, at the request of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, actually recently published a study around patient engagement and the interaction and decision-making process that occur between clinicians and patients. And one of the interesting takeaways from that study showed that although most patients have a strong desire to play a role in their decision-making for themselves or their loved ones, that they're still overwhelmingly delegate those decisions to their physician. And that's exactly what we talked about in the consumerism Mm -hmm. podcast last week, where there's almost an imbalance of knowledge. And so as a result, your trust as a consumer or a patient tends to reside with the person that's going to know more about the clinical aspect of it. Because Unlike buying a car where you can do a ton of research and feel probably pretty confident, um, you know, in the healthcare system, it may be the difference between life and death. Mm-hmm. It makes sense anecdotally. And, you know, we've talked about the car analogy a lot. I still don't know what the inner workings of under the hood of the car is. So I, I actually think it's actually a real similar industry. And it, the physician should be the first line of defense or dialogue with patients when making decisions about their health and wellness. I don't think we're disputing that as a group here. Um, that's the job of clinicians. But as as we evolve and as this healthcare system continues to move forward with time, it's only one piece of the puzzle. So I've, I think we've taken a couple, maybe five other elements that we should really consider when it comes to advocacy. And one is you know, the idea of patient knowledge, which we've really talked a lot about today. We all should be spending time ensuring that patient populations are being adequately informed and able to fully process the amount of complexity and information uh, that is involved that's essential. To your point, the, the Internet, you know, they, they talk about diagnoses, but do, do, we really talk, do we really advocate for the complexities of the system? No, and I think, I, I mean, I think if you look at the content that is available to most, most people would tell you it is very high level. And, like, when you're really facing a disease that um, you don't understand, you want to get deep into it. And you know how the, everybody says, don't look at the internet to self-diagnose yourself. But if you do get diagnosed, I mean, I think where you're finding some of the nitty-gritty on some of the education aspects that you just talked about, maybe in forums where um, other diagnosed patients are sharing their experience, their information. But I still do not think it gets to the level of education that you're talking about, which is really ensuring 
that somebody understands what's going on. And, and I just, I'm not going to go off on a tangent, but think about when you're in a physician's office and you are told that you have been diagnosed with something. You I mean, shut down. You yeah. shut down, right? So think about how difficult that is to comprehend, process, and then really figure out the right questions to ask at that moment of, in time. So I, I, it leaves me wondering, like, where does somebody go to really get the type of education that that is necessary to to really be a true advocate for themselves in the way that they need to be? I love that we're beginning to take a look at a lot of these softer elements of patient literacy, because like all relationships and interactions, really understanding the environment that surrounds these events at the hospital or in the home or over the phone, they're so vitally important to fix this issue, to really understand how all of these interactions are taking place. I think we'd all agree that the clinician, whether it be a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a specialist, it should be the primary advocate, but we should also be focusing on providing training to patients and empowering them to ask questions about their health. Things like medical choices, understanding credentialing around physicians, board certification and accreditation status, logistics around hospital volumes and outcomes even, just to make sure that they're understanding what where they're going to get their care and then maybe even taking a look under the hood and getting into some of the cost aspect. Yeah, and I think that, that just the point around like, understanding that type of information like how many times has somebody a physician done this right can really make the difference between whether you decide to go to this health system or that health system for your treatment and that stuff is not always readily um not readily available it's very difficult to find it's like kind of trying i won't say finding a needle in a haystack but it's pretty difficult Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet it is pretty important. And I would say that, you know, websites like CMS's website are probably like a starting point to at least get a feel for some of those things. But um, we can do a better job as an industry making that information more available to individuals that are trying to make decisions and that do want to do more digging around what their options are when it comes to treatment pathways. It's a really great point. And, and I think a lot of folks don't realize that not even across health systems, many, but even among specialists within the same hospital, there exists many times philosophical differences amongst um, the various treatment methodologies. There are different pathways, there are different treatments, there are different medications depending on the discipline for many of the same diagnoses. You know, and I don't think we're ever gonna get to a point anytime soon when patients will know the intrinsic differences between say, a cardiologist and a vascular surgeon. Um, that was just one example I could think of. But with the right dialogue to get to the point where we're actually getting patients to that next step, to actually ask questions, to explore options. Right. And I think that the patient literacy is certainly a two-way street. I mean, it's the only way it's ever going to be successful, yeah. right, is if it's a two-way street. So we need to be arming and helping patients and their families with information and the right education at the right time. I mean, I have that to me, I keep harping on that just because it's personal experiences, mm-hmm. like it needs to be at the right time because if it's done in any other manage, manner, then um, I do think patient literacy suffers. And the onus has to be shared by both the entity that's providing care, but I think there's opportunity for other sectors within healthcare to also play a part in this. Like, I, you know, I'm just going to think about health plans, for instance. I mean, they actively get inv- involved with case managers and things like that to help 
um, their members really navigate some of the complexities of healthcare. So I think we've talked a lot today about clinicians. We've talked a lot about physicians, but there are, and we mentioned what's going on in life sciences, but there are other sectors that play a role in this patient literacy, patient advocacy. Yeah. And, and I don't want to jump ahead. You mentioned other sectors, which is important, but I just want to, you know, think about a world there where, you know, let's say I had a biopsy on something. And, you know, typically from a human behavior perspective, a, a physician would say, let's not worry about what your treatment is until we figure out what that, what that is. But instead changing the paradigm and giving you those options then and there when you're of the right mindset to know some of your options before you get it. I think, I think there's this fear, this idea that saying that will, will create dread in your life in case it turns out. But flipping that on its head a little bit and thinking a little differently may be a, a good way to go. Yeah, I mean, it's not for everybody, but I think that goes back to, right, how do people want to be, how do they want to interact? What level of understanding do they want to have? When do they want to have it? And so that is where I think it becomes that two-way street. Because Mm -hmm. as a patient, right, like, I do think um, before you're going into something like a biopsy, depending on your preference, you may want to ask those questions. Well, so what, what are the possible outcomes? And based on those possible outcomes, what would be my options. Mm -hmm. I know for me, I'm a planner, so I'd like to have that up front, but I don't think everybody is the same way. So the nuances in in making patient advocacy work um, have to have some flexibility to them. And and the the answer to that is, and we we could talk about this forever, is is perhaps building process and protocol at that health system so that you provide that patient with a template once that does happen for that patient that maybe doesn't want to know that. So they're prepared. So you have a list of things. These are questions that I may have. And Mm -hmm. so anyway sure we'll talk about that more. Yeah, I mean, I think the primary goal of healthcare advocacy is to create environments in all sectors mm. of healthcare yeah. to enable patients' abilities to understand and act on health information, no matter the situation. So it is it is not a one-size-fits-all way to approach a specific patient. I think in the same way that we all may advocate for ourselves differently, we have to be received differently when we interact with the healthcare system to get what we need out of it and to make those decisions in the best way possible. And until health advocacy shapes up as a real discipline of medicine or a, 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 some sort of discipline where you're, you have actually had an active interaction with the patient as they're going through the process, um, I think it'll be hard to, to get that institutionalized. And I think a, a lot of what we have to do is, is focus on carving out time for clinicians to actually hone the skill set and build their competency around providing information about complex parts of the healthcare system, like reimbursement models and just the general interaction of the healthcare landscape and treatment options. I think this is something that physicians and clinicians are going to actually have to focus on to figure out how to best talk to their patients and allow the patients to be advocates. Right. So like almost every topic I feel like we cover, we could discuss this probably all day. I thought this was a really thoughtful discussion on something that just isn't discussed often enough. Um, Unfortunately, it is time to wrap up today's episode with our parting thoughts. I'm going to toss it over to you, Mike, to kick it off. So my parting thought, again, is about something technology-related. Um, so Shocker. I know, I know, I know. Um, it was a, it was a tough, it was a close call for me. Um, so the, Apple has recently announced the Watch Series Four, 
Uh, and it has a lot of interesting improvements. It's got a bigger screen. It comes in two different sizes. Uh, but one that really jumped out at me as something that could be game-changing within the healthcare industry is there is an ECG monitor built into the actual watch. It uses a, a pulse sensor on the top of your wrist and also coming through your index finger on the side of the crown. And this is interesting to me, not because it's the first over-the-counter consumer available wrist-mounted ECG. It's not. There are products out there that exist. It's interesting to me because it's taking a healthcare-focused functionality and putting it into a product that millions of people already have or have the desire to get. So as opposed to reaching out only to people who may want to monitor their heart, they're reaching out to everyone who may want an Apple Watch and are offering the ability to monitor their heart and to maybe pre-diagnose AFib. And that was one of the demonstrations that they showed up on the stage. And I think it's really interesting and it continues the trend where technology companies are starting to recognize behaviors that they might want to see in their customers and figure out a way to deliver it in a form factor that the customers already have in their hands or already have on their minds for their wish list. So that's just really fascinating to me. Um, and uh, I'll probably be getting one pretty soon. All right. Again, another shocker. Another shocker. <laughs> We're not surprised by that. So my parting thought is on a recent study that was published by Zitter Health that revealed a much higher number of copay accumulator and maximizer programs and policies that are being adopted by health plans and PBMs. Um, so this is about in a separate podcast, um, but it, I think the assumption at that time, which was only about four months ago, was that these were very limited in scope. Um, this study by Zitter suggests that in 2018, almost 60% of commercially insured patients are that are enrolled in plans um, are with plans that have the capability to actually implement one of these two approaches. However, some of the plans with the ability to implement both accumulators and or maximizers have not done so yet. I think the study also um, really called out a couple of things, that 44% of commercial lives are enrolled in plans with copay accumulators. Almost two-thirds, so 28% out of that 44% of these lives are in plans that have implemented accumulator and maximizer programs for 2018. And 14% of commercial lives are enrolled in plans that also have copay maximizers. So I, I think what this the, – the study was interesting to me, and I would suggest anybody that is – working in the healthcare industry, either in the plan or the life sciences space, really check it out. But I think it speaks to also um, our most recent podcast on consumerism and patients acting as consumers. I think it speaks to the challenge in advocating for yourself or a loved one when benefit structures are very complex. Because many times what's happening right now with these accumulators and maximizers is that the patient does not even realize that this has been put in place or implemented until they actually go to refill a prescription and they're getting a surprise uh basically cost share that they were not expecting mm -hmm. um so i think check out the zitter health report it's very interesting i think it, it just begs us to ask a lot of questions about um whether that's the right way to deal with what's going on with copay cards out in the life sciences space that's good. Really interesting stuff, Mindy. And my my parting thought for the day is um, a little sad. It's 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 beckons back to a New York Times article a few weeks back, entitled "Where a Sore Throat Becomes a Death Sentence," and um, it was written by Denise Grady. And you should all check it out. It's just a real good kind of um, 
resetting article that talks about strep throat. So when we think of strep throat here in the States, you know, it's kind of a nagging uh, sickness that our kids get or we get. And there's a rapid strep test that you can go at a retail clinic at an urgent care, even your doctor's office to get diagnosed. You get antibiotics and you're good in three to five days. Um, In reality, you know, in other parts of the developing world, um, it's a major cause of death because it becomes undiagnosed. It turns into what is called as rheumatic heart disease. And that's that's a fatal sentence. And there's some stories in the article around some of these children that are 13, 14 years old that are mistaken for being pregnant. And in reality, they've swollen belly because they have this terrible rheumatic heart disease. And just the idea that, you know, almost 320,000 people die annually with rheumatic heart disease, all preventable, all opportunities for us to fix. And, you know, think about that's the size of a small to mid-sized city. And um, just taking a look back at, like, the world as a whole and thinking, like, what we can do to think about, socialize, and talk about how we can do some simple things to, to help heal children. It just was a real shocking article. I guess you need to step back and read some of these things. So more to come. This concludes today's High Five podcast, and we want to hear from you about today's episode or other topics that may be on your mind. Please feel free to contact us at 267-930-4711 and share your message. And for additional conversation about the work that we are doing in the healthcare industry or a deeper follow-up on how Vynamic might assist you with your business initiatives, please feel free to reach out. And for links on anything we talk about today, visit this episode's podcast description. And until the next cast, have a great day.